Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of For What It's Worth podcast. I am cranking these things out like quarter pounders at this point. They're so easy. There's so much stuff to talk about. Every day I keep a running tally. I keep a paper list. Got to add this. And then I transfer it to my iPad. And then it transfers automatically to all my other digital devices because I am so connected and so hip, which you should know by now. But who is this podcast for? Well, it's for anyone who's yelled, send it, and then woken up in the ER. I think anyone who's done that, I want you here on this podcast. You have a home. And for any of you who have been too drunk to eat a 29-cent taco from Taco Bell, yeah, welcome aboard. This podcast is for you. Now, I just want to give a technical note up front. I do love my iPad Pro. I think my iPad Pro is the only Apple device I've had that I actually go, God, I really love this thing. Now, the battery's failing, of course. Like everything else I have in my digital life, it fails. But that's me, probably not you. This is my fourth iPad. The other three broke very quickly. This one has lasted for some reason, but it's a really useful tool. I can draw with it. I keep all my notes on it. I can do email. I can watch stuff, whatever. It's a little, you know, it's still an in-between device. If you're a creator, it's not great. If you're a consumer, it's pretty good. So not bad. Uh, on a tangent here, before we get to our hero and our po first, I've got a ton of points this week, like huge amounts. I don't think I can get to them all, but I'm going to try. This is totally unrelated to anything. I always loved the movie Silverado. I don't know if any of you have seen this. I've probably seen it 10,000 times, right? It's like one of those 19, maybe late 80s, early 90s, feel-good westerns, you know, good guys, bad guys, a uh, great cast. And I was like, I was like, I think it was filmed partially in New Mexico, but I'm like, oh, it would be so great to be back in that time and, you know, be a, 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 a gunslinger. And then I was like, you know, I don't, they don't have espresso makers. Like I can't get oat milk at the, at the store and I, and I don't have a space heater. It's too cold. Like they're wearing leather jackets and it's 15 degrees outside. I realized it, it doesn't work for me. I couldn't go back and do that. Just thought you'd, I'd let you know. Okay. Hero of the week is someone who I know all of you know, because his name is so cool. It's Baron Carl von Dreis. Let me repeat that. Baron which I think means badass in German, Baron Karl von Dreis, who, my friends, invented the bicycle in 1817. Yes. Uh, again, I think the bicycle is one of the most important inventions of our entire species, and at least in the modern, modern part of our species. I don't think it would have done well back in the dinosaur era. Uh, I just don't think so. I think uh, it would have been challenging a bit challenging to get tires fixed and cables replaced and all that stuff. But Carl von Dreis is the guy who did it in, in uh, 1817. And by the way, there were no pedals on the bike when he first introduced it. You used your feet like Fred Flintstone and moved it along. You can still buy bikes like this, which I think is kind of cool. Kids love them. They're normally tiny with tiny wheels. But anyway, he's our hero of the week. Okay, moving on. We have a ton of points. I've got some adventure tips. I've got some film hipster spoofing I need to do. Um, I've got some questions that were asked to me over the last week in regards to photography and fame and all these other kinds of weird things that are, people are asking me about photography, but I think they're really valid questions. Um, I also want to talk about trolls online, and I think I actually really love trolls for the most part, um, but I see them discourage people. I want to talk a little bit about that. I want to talk a second about the Fuji X-T4, um, and also a very interesting concept I've been thinking about about it, what if the public says we don't want to go back to normal kind of thing? So we've got a whole bunch of other things. I want to talk about um, making cuts on your hands, not on purpose, but uh, what's great about that and uh, many other things. So let's get started. Point number one is many of you know, I sold my truck a few months ago. My wife and I bought a van, nothing over the top, basic Dodge ProMaster. The inside is kitted out by this company called Wayfair out of Colorado Springs. I really like them. It's basic. It's fast. It's not the cheapest way to go, but it's the quickest uh, modular internal system that kits out the van literally within three hours of getting your van, it's done, right? And you can, and I can take it out in and out if I want to. It's a very easy system, beautiful. The van is basic, two-wheel drive. ProMasters are in every town, every dealership. They're easy to get parts, inexpensive to work on, et cetera, et cetera. But when I show the van to people uh, or tell people about the van, I think this is really funny. The first question I get, especially when they see the van in person, is, quote, oh my God, where do you go to the bathroom? 
because there is no bathroom in the van. Now, I think this is hilarious, and it speaks to our culture in general, and I think it's the reason, the same exact reason that when the virus hit, everybody hoarded toilet paper, right? And the rest of the world looks at us and just kind of shakes their head in disgust, like, oh God, Americans, again, like silly Americans. The thing is, I love going to the bathroom. I don't know about you. It's probably my favorite part of the day. I love it. I'm alone. It's quiet. No one's asking me for anything. There's no software involved. There's no digital stuff to fail me. And you're like, oh, this is great. And then every day you're reminded, oh, this is the best thing I've ever done. This is probably the most success I will ever have in my life. And even having said that, the percentage, if I had to break down 24 hours into percentages, the percentages of time spent going to the bathroom should be less than 50%. No, I'm kidding. It should be a lot less. It's probably less than 1% of your day. But for some reason, it just dominates people's mind frame of, and I've had a lot of people go, I, uh, I could never drive a van. Oh, no, I could never do it. No, no, I couldn't go anywhere. Where do you go to the bathroom? And I'm like, you can go virtually anywhere. There's all kinds of services and facilities and parks and whatever. Sure, it's not, not like home. I mean, the home porcelain is like home court advantage, right, in football. There's a reason home teams win most of the time, right? Home field advantage. Home porcelain advantage is real as well. But sometimes the teams who really prove themselves, they go on the road. They win on the road. And that's my point to you. But it gets better. So yesterday I decided to check in with my cousin uh, who lives somewhere in the western United States. That's all I'm going to give you. Now, my cousin... Uh, is very different. He's a very different human being. And I knew that from the time that I was old enough to recognize I had a self and that there was such thing as another person. Okay, so like I was tiny. And when my cousin would come to visit, I could tell he was different simply by the reaction of the other adults in the room. His name's Bard. Bard did not fit in any category. He did not fit to conform to society. He didn't do what he thought people expected him to do. He lived a life that was very unlike anyone else I knew, and still to this day has done things I don't know anyone else who's done. So I called him and I said, hey, I'm just checking in, man. I want to make sure you're okay with the virus. Uh, you know, what are you reading? He's, he's always reading something cool. He's a great writer as well. And we started talking uh, about adventure because I remember as a kid, I would go to his house in Ohio, and he had a brown Toyota Celica, like the original Toyota Celica. It was like four-speed manual transmission, brown. It was like dog shit brown, basically. I mean that in the most positive of ways. And he always had a Hobie cat behind it, like a 14- or 16-foot Hobie cat behind it, and Bard sailed all the time. So I, when I was talking to him, I realized, I remembered, I was like, God, hey, I got the sailing bug, man. I really want to learn. So he was telling me like a couple of books to read and, and some advice and like what how, the difference between learning on a Hobie and something else. And I said to him, I go, Bard, I have memories of you that I need to verify. He starts laughing. I said, did you sail from Ohio to Central America in a, in a kayak? More, more laughing. He goes, no, I sailed from Southeast Ohio to Honduras in a canoe with a sail. And I'm now I'm laughing. And I go, you got to be kidding me. He goes, no, 14 months, southeastern Ohio. And then he breaks down the, the sail rig that he built into this canoe that had a rudder on the back and like a couple of other pieces to it. But he said it was an amazing thing. And he goes, look, I could even sail it upwind. It was this incredible thing. But he goes, we just went. We did, and it was he, was he and his wife. We just went at the time. You know, we, we left we left everything behind and just went 14 months. And I'm like, holy cow, that is what you call an adventure. Paper map, no GPS, no outside connection to the world. He just went. So I go, wow, that's just, uh, that's pretty amazing. He goes, well, did I tell you about Peru? I said, no. He goes, well, we didn't take the canoe because we couldn't take it on the plane. So we got a collapsible kayak and a month's worth of, of food and a desalination gun. And we flew to Peru the Eastern Andes, and we sailed the kayak up the Manu River in Peru, which is the, considered the most biodiverse place on earth, by the way, in case you're wondering. And then he's like, oh, did I tell you about Nicaragua? Yeah, we did the same thing in Nicaragua. And I was like, I go, hey, wait a second. I thought you told me you went to the Bahamas. And he goes, oh, yeah, we sailed a 125-mile stretch 
of the Bahamas three times in our kayak with a sail. And we would go from island to island in this kayak with this desalination gun. No plan, no timeline. And his quote was, yeah, I don't really like to plan too much. So what I see happening now, and this has happened to me for sure, I'm guilty of this as well, is let's say that you want to go on an adventure. It could be small, medium, or large. And you go, okay, I'm going to go on this adventure. You know, I'm really going to do this now, and this is going to be good, but I got to go, do, I got to go online and do some research. And online, you see, oh, you're going to go do that adventure? You got to have a Superflex 5000. You got to have the 5000. You can't go on that adventure without the Superflex 5000. And you go, oh, oh, God, I got to buy a Superflex 5000. And then the Superflex people go, yeah, but we're coming out with a 5001. And you go, oh, God, what do I do? Do I buy the 5000 or do I wait to the 5001? And they're like, you know, if you buy the 5001, you really need the, um, the snakeskin module that goes with it. And we sell the snakeskin module and the human skin module. And, you know, 50% of the people are like, oh, you got to have the snakeskin module to go with the Superflex 5000. Although the human skin model is more natural. But if you're going to go human skin, you got to get the holster that goes with it because it just is a better carrying case for the whole thing. And if you need the Superflex 5000 and the human skin and the holding case, well, it all has to be color coordinated, right? And so now you're, you're absolutely crippled. You're devastated. You can't move anywhere. You don't ever go on the adventure because you're just so mired in all the stuff that you're supposed to have before you go. And you see this all the time in the overlanding community. Holy cow. People tricking out. I've got to have a backdoor barbecue grill attached to the tailgate, and I need a satellite dish and a perimeter laser defense system, or I can't go to the, you know, uh, to the eastern Sierras. I can't go to the Alabama Hills. You know, you probably can't go to the Alabama Hills because there's a line of overlanders 50 miles long trying to get into the same park. You also see this with, with photographers. I got to have this, 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 and this before I can go do this. And you're like, no, you don't really do that. The internet, I think, kind of kind of stymies us, stifles us from just doing and just trying something. And talking to my cousin is so refreshing because he doesn't go on the internet. He doesn't have, I think he has a mobile phone, maybe. Doesn't have email, doesn't text doesn't go online, does paper maps for everything, and still goes out. He's probably mid-60s, and you know he said, oh, I just came back from a three-day hike. I just walked out the back door and uh, went into the mountains, came back three days later. Anyway, he's a, he's a beacon for the rest of us that we don't need a lot of stuff to go. We just need to go. That, that's the thing. And I'm hoping the virus is, is reemphasizing this point. Okay, point number two, dear film hipsters. Again, this is going to be a reoccurring thing every week because these doofuses, um, they're, they're mesmerizing. I simultaneously love it, and I'm also just, you know, I'm, the, I'm closing my eyes and shaking my head. Um, dear film hipsters, the Pentax 110 is not new. It's not. Um, I, you know how I know that? Let me repeat this. The Pentax 110, which is the little tiny Pentax, the interchangeable 110 Pentax that came out a long time ago and then came out the 110, I think, Pentax Super or whatever. You know how I know this? Because my mother had the entire system in 1978 when it came out. That's how I know. So when I see hipsters talking about this, hey, this is a good camera and wow, Bob, it's not new. And regardless of your YouTube hook on trying to get people to watch your film by saying this is a good camera and a good camera system, you are wrong. It sucked in 1978, and it sucks just as bad now. Just because it's small doesn't mean it's good. 110 was interesting because it, the quality was so bad. That's what made it interesting. It was small. That's what it was. The 110 Pentax was the knee-jerk reaction to the metal SLR of people saying, oh my God, I don't want to carry something. So Pentax was smart to making it. But dear film hipsters, if you want to talk about a small, capable camera that's just as small as the Pentax, you want to do your reviews on the Minox. The Minox, which is a film 35-millimeter camera, um, also not new. And just to throw you a wrench here, the Minox, which if you don't know about it, film hipster, arrived in 1936, and their Mini 35 camera arrived in 74. So, okay, so 30 years before any of you were born, these cameras were in circulation. And not only in circulation, there was remarkable work being made with these cameras back then, way better than anything that anybody's making today with those cameras or any, like, 35 small cameras. Really famous work. So I just want to give an update to those who forget to look in the rearview mirror, um, who can't be bothered by history, 
and want to act like every idea they have is original. So again, 1978 Pentax 110, it sucked then and it sucks now, even though it's kind of cool looking, fits in the palm of your hand. Okay. So I did a podcast last week, not a podcast. I did a YouTube live and someone had written in with about, before we even started the chat on the right-hand side of the screen had six or eight questions from the same person. And people thought the questions were backhanded questions at me. The person was taking a shot at me by saying, you know, hey, um, no offense, but uh, why, why are you not any better known than you are? Why have you not made more iconic pictures? Because no offense, you know, everything's veiled with no offense. No offense, but, you know, other people who's wor- who've worked as long as you have more iconic imagery. And why are you not more famous? Another person wrote in and said, why? I did a Google search and, you know, this guy's telling people to make books, but he doesn't have any books for sale. And how can you not sell books and blah, blah, blah. So I think all of these are completely valid questions. Um, I don't think they're backhanded at all. I think those come from people who are nervous about something or agitated. So I'll tell you about the fame thing. I think that's a very, very good point because it's not something um, that was ever part of my life as a photographer. That never The idea of being famous, uh, I never got that gene. And the last thing that I ever wanted from photography was fame. So I went back to a friend of mine who I went to photo school with and asked if, if he remembered any of us who were in school together ever talking about being famous or rich from photography. And of course, he just laughed and said, none of us thought we would ever make a living with photography, let alone get famous or make enough money to survive. So that, and these are people, all of us went through a four-year degree program, and we still didn't think that, which is probably why our parents were so pissed that we were studying photography. But I want to just relay something to you, and I've probably mentioned this before at some point in these podcasts. But I don't like people looking at me. I don't like people talking about me. I've never liked the center of attention. I've been in one school play where I played the devil, which I think is kind of fitting. Um, And that's about it. Like, I don't, my wife is the polar opposite. She wants to be the center of attention all the time, which is great for me because it's a great deflection until she goes out on the dance floor. Anytime there's dancing happening, I always say to her, please, please don't go out by yourself because then everybody looks around and sees, all right, who's this woman with some loser who's not out on the dance floor? Because I can't dance. She dances amazingly well. I suck. And she goes, no problem, no problem, no problem. And then the second the music starts, she goes out by herself every single time. And then I have to go out and it's just her and I in front of everyone. And then I look like an idiot because I can't dance. That's happened to me 10,000 times. You know, and, and I cannot drink enough alcohol to balance out the scales. Alcohol, it just doesn't work. I got to try like heroin or crystal meth or something. So anyway, back in the 90s, I looked enough like Brad Pitt for there to be a problem. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. I, didn't, I, did, I wasn't trying to look like him. I just happened to look enough like him at that time, pre-Lyme, I will note, where I, you know, th- now the advanced aging experience that's happened to me over the past six years of Lyme is, those days are long gone. But at the time, I had long hair, he had long hair, and we had similar features. I'll just put it at that. So, you know, I started to get these comments, oh, you know, yeah, you look like Brad Pitt, oh, okay, great, you know, whatever. But then one day I live, and I'm living in Southern California, which is bad, because everybody's on the lookout for celebrities. So I pull into a parking garage. And the parking attendant is there, and the window. I roll the window down, and he looks in, and I see the look on his face, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, this is not going to end well. He goes, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's, he starts screaming, you're the guy. You're the guy. You're the guy. I go, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. He goes, yeah, 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 yeah. And his buddy behind him leans in. And now they're freaking out, and now I'm panicked because I can't back out of this place, and they think that I'm Brad Pitt. I'm like, no, no, no. So it's very uncomfortable. His buddy tries to talk him down. Um, he's freaking out. The little thing in front of my car won't lift up. I'm trapped. I'm like, okay, this is weird. So I finally get in and get away from these guys. Then I go to Texas to visit my parents. I'm in a small town in central Texas in a cafe. And it's my father and I only. And it's packed. We're sitting in the middle of the room and the waitress comes over and she looks down at me and she goes, oh my God, it's you. And I said, no, it's not. I'm not. It's not. I'm not. And she goes, yes, 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 you're, you're him, you're him. And I go, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. Now, my dad is sitting there laughing hysterically. He thinks this is really funny. So the waitress walks away, and I go, dad, this is not good. And he's like, oh, it's no big deal, blah, 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 blah. So I look over towards the kitchen, and the waitress has gathered the kitchen staff in the hallway, 
and is pointing at me, and they're all clustered behind her looking at me. And I go, this is not good. So she comes over with her notepad to take the order, and she goes, will you please sign my notepad? And I very politely and very slowly and very quietly said, I'm really sorry, but I'm not who you think I am. And she started wailing, screaming, in the crying in the middle of the restaurant. Now, this is like a bunch of Central Texas people, right? Everything stops. And again, I don't like people looking at me or paying attention to me. So I, I go, give me the notepad. And I start writing, I guess, I probably wrote like a fake Brad Pitt signature. And my dad, she goes, You're, I've seen you. I've seen the movies and on TV. And my dad goes, yeah, that's him. He's a kung fu star. And that made it a hundred times worse, of course, and now he's laughing. But I, I had to leave. I also, I told this before, I think this story on the podcast, I had to run from a van load of tourists here in Santa Fe, jump a fence and hide behind a tree. So that is my brush with fame, which has nothing to do with me other than I happen to look enough like someone who's famous. But all I could remember thinking is, for someone like me, who's built like me, this is the worst possible thing that could happen to me. So I've told you over the last few months, every time someone's come to me to publish something or to have me run an image or have an image in a show, I've said no. I say no across the board. I do not have any interest. I will never be famous. I have no interest in it whatsoever. And I just don't want to be known as a photographer. That's not enough for me anymore. There's a lot of people out there with cameras and photographers, and it just doesn't interest me that much anymore. Although I still love photography, so it's a big part of my life, but I just don't want any recognition. I don't need any recognition for the work that I'm making. Most of what I do, you will never see. That's just the way it's always been. Okay. Uh, So point number four is about winning and losing in the age of the internet troll, right? And so it's funny. The second I started making YouTube films, I knew that YouTube is the perfect place for the troll, right? There's a million of them out there. And I do think YouTube troll comments are a good reflection of our society in general. Because I think each troll represents literally thousands of people who just don't have the cojones to go on there and and say the same thing. You know, they're hiding behind anonymity, but what they're saying is often reflective of a much broader association of people. And I think I think it's actually a good thing to have these the trolls out there. But the point is that if you have if you let these folks influence you in any way, shape, or form. Um, it's not, you're, you're basically, you have to thicken up your skin a little bit. And I think once you've been in photography a long time, um, and I think going back all the way to photography school, a lot about photography school was showing your work to people who probably didn't like it. And we're not going to be shy about telling you that they didn't like you or your work in front of you and in front of everyone else. That was a big part of it. The critiques in front of the other classes, you know, most of the time people were okay, but there were also times where this was the first trolls except they weren't hiding. They were sitting in front of you and they're like, oh, you suck. Now I remember one assignment that I did not want to do in college. I thought it was beneath me because I was a jerk probably. I'd already worked at newspapers and everything before I came into the college. And so school at UT Austin felt really slow to me and just too basic and too slow because I'd been doing newspaper assignments. And so we had to shoot this thing called Color for Mood. And I was like, oh, please God, you know, I want to go do a photo essay on the border. I don't want to shoot Color for Mood. So I was driving around pissed, looking for an image to be color as mood, and I'm in my old Land Cruiser, and I'm driving around outside of Austin, which is now all city, all developed. Where I was was like dirt roads in the middle of nowhere, and I came across a dog that had been hit by a car, and the dog had been out there for probably three or four days, and it was just infested with maggots, and it was kind of this cool yellowy, pussy, uh, you know, kind of color, and I'm like, it's kind of beautiful, and the late afternoon sun was coming in, so I made this very detailed picture of a maggot-infested dead dog, which I then projected for the whole class to see. And there was screaming and shrieking, and I was like, oh, I guess that's color for mood. Um, But there were a lot of haters, oddly enough, and their hate just didn't transcend to the photograph. The hate transcended to my DNA. It was like, we want you dead, basically. But the thing is, it didn't deter me because I was like, I'm my own person, and I'm going to do my own thing, and it doesn't matter what the masses say. Most of the time, and I think this is true, sadly, for a lot, a significant percentage of our population, not just in America, but the world, 
there's a lot of unhappy people. There's a lot of people out there behind the eight ball. And these are not people who are online. These are people trying to survive. There's 600 million uh, hungry people in America, or not 600 people in America, in the world, 600 million minimum number of people who are trying to get food, shelter, and water and are barely making it. But the in online people are privileged sort of first world, second world folks. There's a lot of unhappy people. So it spills out. If you're a victim of one of these people, don't sweat it. It's not that big of a deal. Tomorrow the sun, hopefully, will come up again, and you'll get to go to the bathroom, and it'll be like, wow, like a do-over. Okay, point number five, the Fuji X-T4. Okay, so I use the Fuji X-T2, right? I have for, since it came out. I don't know when that was. It's probably, you know, in camera terms, it's like Rip Van Winkle. It's being like being asleep for 100 years. No one uses the X-T2 um, because there's an X-T3, and now there's an X-T4, and I'm sure there's an X-T5 that's probably already been specced out and ready to, you know, waiting for, waiting for them to unleash it on everybody. So my assumption was, because I'm shooting video now, and the X-T2s don't have image stabilization built in, and I thought, you know, that's something I could really use because I'm out in the field a lot, at least pre-virus, and I thought, I, I really need that. The X-T3 is way better than the X-T2 from what I've heard, but I thought, eh, whatever, I'll get away with it. I don't need it. And then a couple of weeks went by, and I was like, I don't need an X-T4. You know, sure, it has image stabilization, but it doesn't really matter for what I'm doing. And even if for some miraculous reason, my filmmaking actually got good. And that ain't happening, because I am a long way from good. But if it did, I still don't need the X-T4. And I went back to a friend of mine who makes multimedia pieces, really good multimedia pieces, and I looked at his films. And there was virtually no handheld film work at all. And I was so stunned because when you go on YouTube or you look at like young, quote unquote, cinematic filmmakers, it's all drone and handheld stuff, right? It's cinematic, but it often has no story whatsoever. It's not, it, 30 seconds in, you're like, all right, I've seen this, I've seen this, I've seen this. I get it. It's backlit. It's, it's 8K. It's cinematic. But you have nothing to say, right? My buddy has everything to say. And it's almost like, Ken, my buddy's like Ken Burns. You know when you go into a Ken Burns film, you know what you're going to get. And it's for what he does, there's no one in the world that can touch him. His film, the most successful documentarian, visual documentarian in history, film-wise. And you know what you're going to get. It stills an audio, primarily. And then a little bit of motion mixed in. And so I realized, I don't need a new camera. You know, I have two that still function. I have a handful of batteries that still kind of function. And, uh, and I'm good. So I'm going to save the money and buy toilet paper. You know, what else am I going to do? All right. This is maybe the most important point of the week. Uh, I don't know. Maybe not. So I'm curious about something. And I've been talking to some friends about this and just kind of wondering about what would happen. Um, and I'm basing this on sentiment that I've heard from all castes of society. Friends that don't have a pot to piss in. And friends who are very wealthy, very successful, very structured. And my question is this, um, and I, I got this stat from somewhere, and now I, oh, a friend in the UK who's an older gentleman gave me this stat and said that in the UK they did a survey, and 9% of the population said they wanted to return to, quote, normal, to pre-virus normal. 9% said we want to go back. So what if what we had before the virus what we considered normal. What if it wasn't normal? What if it wasn't healthy? What if a significant portion of the population, even 30%, what if 30% of Americans go, I don't want to go back. I don't want that pace of life. I don't want that frenetic. I don't want the greed. I don't want everything being done for money and savings and big business and big corporation and financial markets and blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm out. I'm done. I'm quitting. I'm going to go grow my own food. I'm going to grow my hair out and, you know, wear a loincloth. I don't know. But it got me thinking. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking about this. And I'm literally in the corner in a ball. And my inner child's in a shame spiral. And I'm like, I got to think about this. And, and all of a sudden, someone texts me about Trump saying he wants to open the economy. And I'm just going to take the word Trump out. It could be anybody. There's more than Trump who wants to open up the, open up the economy. And, and open up the country. We are obviously completely and utterly ill-prepared to open up, right? We don't have any testing in place. We're, we're t we've tested less than one, per or no, we've tested just over 1% of our population. Think about that. The, I guess the highest concentration of testing in the world was done by Iceland at about 12% of their population, but that's only 
like 60,000 people. It's a very small country, obviously, in terms of um, uh, population. And so we've tested just over 1% of our population. And you have all the politicians saying, oh, the testing is no problem and it's coming. And that's all, those are all lies, right? We don't have the kits. Half the kits are faulty. There's no testing facilities. I would have no idea where to go right now to get tested. Um, the only people that I know that quickly and easily get tests are very, 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 very wealthy people, right? And I know a couple that have stuff on call that you would simply not believe. But anyway, I got, you know, I got to thinking and I thought, look, the reason, one of the reasons that they're really pushing to open the economy is what's been exposed during the virus is the fragility of our entire society. Finance, transportation, energy, healthcare, etc. It is a house of cards. It always has been, but we were so ill-prepared for the virus. And if, you know, you take a look at the markets or the healthcare ventilators, whatever it is, you go, holy cow, we were so, not even, ill-prepared is not even the right word. We weren't even in the ballpark of being prepared. And here's where I see is the problem. The problem is they have to get things back to normal. They have to put people into the workforce because the entire system is at stake. And what's happening is the corporations, the government, the one percenters, big business, greed, they have to have us, the sheep. They need sheep. They need us. And what they're doing is they're saying, look, that we're playing, we're playing a game of Russian roulette. There could be, we're basically trading lives for dollars. And what is the excess, excess, uh, the acceptable rate of death? That could be a half a million people. That could be a quarter million people. They are completely and utterly willing to do that to get money flowing again. Because the big business side of America has been what's driving us for the last several decades. And it's bad. I mean, I feel like a rat in the maze much, much of the time. And that, to me, it was the, the clearest indicator was like, look, we are so woefully ill-prepared, but we're also not prepared for our society to collapse. And that's kind of where we're at, which is kind of terrifying. But at the same time, I'm still holding out 0.000001% hope that Americans like reset, hit the reset button. But based on the guys with the AR-15s at the, at the economy rally, I'm not thinking that's going to happen. Okay, moving on to a quick piece about limits. Uh, so as you guys know, as you people know, I've made a lot of books over the last few decades. 93 was when I first started making books. 95 was when I made my first zine sort of magazine that I, thanks to Paul Giraud, that I think was was good. It was interesting. It got me some interesting feedback from clients. I got interest from clients, that kind of thing. And if you fast forward to photography today, there's virtually, and bookmaking for that matter, there's hardly any limits on anything. Right. If I want to do a trade book, I have 440 pages as a limit. You know how big that is? You know how much time it takes to design 440 pages? It's astronomical, right? There's like that to me that that's like almost saying there is no page limit. With photography, there's megapixels and, and frames per second and software, and there's just endless amounts of options out there. And but here's the thing. Again, I go back to my first point of the day, which is we kind of stifle ourselves with so many options or so many choices or so many gear requirements or whatever it is that we end up not doing anything. One of the most helpful things you can do, whether you're a photographer or you're a bookmaker or zine maker, is to give yourself limits, is to limit everything. Now in college, and I was a documentary, you know, studying documentary photography basically is what most of the people in the program were doing least in the photojournalism program, there was a photography program where you could do fine art or whatever, which is probably where I should have been. I didn't even know it existed until I was almost ready to graduate. I felt like an idiot. Uh, but anyway, I'm studying photojournalism. And like the, the school would say, okay, you got to come up with a project, a topic. And, you know, students were always like, I'm going to do homeless in America. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm, I'm sure I was guilty of that as well. Homeless in America. Really? You're going to school five days a week, and you have no money, and you're in Austin, Texas, and you're going to do a project about America. And so the, the, the faculty, the good faculty members would say, you know, you can't do homeless in America. But, but the guy across the street who's living in the park, you can go spend a month with him, and he's representative of homeless in America. You don't need to go all across the country. Just do Billy in the park across the street, and Billy's going to unveil everything you need to know about what it means to be homeless. And so that, to me, always stuck with me. And I think it was Julie Newton that was the instructor that, that might have said that, or Dennis Darling, maybe. I don't remember. 
Uh, J.B. Colson was the head of the department, but I don't remember having a whole lot of conversations with him. It was, I think it was Julie who gave me that piece of advice, and that was like a solid thing. And so a lot of times when I'm talking to people about making books or zines or doing photo projects or whatever, it's always tiny. You know, how many people in, in, live in Los Angeles are like, I'm going to do a photo project on Los Angeles? And I'm like, well, city projects are considered some of the hardest projects to do, but also like who has time and money to do that? I did a project once, once on the intersection of Fifth and Broadway in downtown LA. And to me, that was Los Angeles. That was representative of almost the entire city in one intersection. So if you're going to work on a project, if you're going to make a book, if you're going to do something creative, just do something tiny, so small. That's all you need to do. Okay. Uh, one of the things that I think would help, this is point number eight, by the way. One of the things I think would help most of us is, uh, and this is a weird point, but I think it's, I think it's important, especially for us, first world, digital, connected, high tech, successful people, not to mention savagely good looking. But anyway, that's another story is I realized I'm happiest in life and I'm most productive and most creative. Follow me here. When I have cuts on my hand. Okay, let me repeat that. I find to be most content, most productive, and most creative when I my hands are cut or frayed or dry or all of the above. And what I mean is I like to work with my hands, which is in polar opposition to the rest of my life. Yes, you could say that working with a camera is working with your hands, but it's not really. You know, you're, you're, you, have, you should have one enormously muscular index finger on your right hand, and then the rest of your body is just emaciated because all you do is press the button on the camera. But I was fixing a hose uh, mount the other day, and I was raking. To get to it, I had to spin my hand against an Adobe wall. And if, for those of you who know Adobe, it's rough, right? And I looked, and as I was doing this, I saw this red pattern emerge on the wall. And I was like, oh, cool. Look, there's color for some reason. And what I realized was I had ripped off the back of a knuckle, and it was blood on the wall that was coming from my hand. But I fixed the hose, and I felt really good about it because it was a drip system. And I'm like, I'm a genius. I'm so mechanical, I can do anything. But it just reminded me of all the times in my life when I was doing much more physical labor than I was now. And this is something I've never, never explained sorry, I'm tearing up. When I was working, I got an internship at the Arizona paper in 93. I stayed around for a year and a half. I was supposed to be there for three months. I stayed for a year and a half. And then I left for a while and I came back and I was freelancing out of Phoenix, mostly for the paper, but I was also freelancing for like anyone else who would come through editorial newspapers, whatever. There were not many people freelancing in Phoenix at that time. So getting assignments was not that difficult, but I still didn't have enough money. So my next-door neighbor was pretty funny. My next-door neighbor was a family with a young kid, young boy. And um, the boy would come over and hang out with the— I was renting a room at a house of another photographer, and she and I would hang out, and the kid would come over, and we would all hang out and talk and stuff. Very fun. And the dad ran a construction business, and the dad was a badass. Like, he got up at 4 o'clock in the morning every day, no, didn't drink, didn't smoke, like, you know, was in Lotus for three hours before he went to work, et cetera. And he worked his ass off. And so he came over one day and said, hey, do you want to work on the construction crew? And I had done construction before. I'd been a hot tub installer. I'd worked on construction stuff my whole life. In Wyoming as a kid, we were building corrals and whatever. I was mostly useless at that age, but, you know, still working. And so I was like, yeah, I'll do this. And so I was freelancing as a photographer, but I was also getting up and working for like the first four or five hours a day. I was doing construction and full-on everything, framing, floors, you know, whatever. And my hands and body were, like, wasted all the time. But it felt so good. And I think it's a really important part of being creative, I think, at least for me, is that it just can't be about putting a paint on a canvas or pressing a button or especially sitting at a computer and doing software. There's so much more. you got to get physical and get out there and do something. Now, I'm sure there are exceptions to this out there. There's, I'm sure, world-class artists who've never worked in their life outside of putting paint on canvas, and I'm, that's totally fine. But for me, it has never worked that way, probably because I'm not that talented, but don't tell anyone. Okay. Uh, another quick question here is, um, so I hardly connect with the news at all anymore. 
because especially I've talked about this a few times, the television, I don't watch television, so I don't have television news. And if I look at CNN online, it just seems like a game show. I, I think of Steve Martin and the jerk, you know, at the, at the carnival with the hammer game where you hit the hammer and it sends the silver thing up. And if you ring the bell, you get a prize. And he goes, okay, you want a prize? It's anything between the thimble and the oven mitt. You know, I love that scene. But Trump gets up at the podium every day. And he just lies his ass off, right? He's, he, he does it even not he, when there is no virus going. That's his MO is he just, he wings it. You can see the looks on the people of behind him like, oh God, here he goes again. And he just lies his ass off. So my point is, why are we showing, why would anyone record and broadcast those press conferences? It makes no sense to me. You just turn it off. Like, sure, let him get up and talk and Fox News will be there. But everyone else should just ignore it and just go to Fauci and say, look, we're going to do a conference with you or whoever is from there from the CDC or the World Health or whoever, and just do that. Because remember Walter Cronkite? And for any of you who's young, probably not. But Walter Cronkite was a remarkably trusted individual, right? And this was, someone pointed this out on my site today, prior to the Telecommunications Act, which kind of ruined all this stuff. But Cronkite was trusted. You saw him online, on television. And people said, wow, if it's coming out of his mouth, I better pay attention, and I know that it's, it's true. It's as close to the truth as they can get. And we are so far gone from that, it is ridiculous. I mean, I do love The Atlantic. I do love The New Yorker outlets like that because what it takes to get something in print at either of those outlets is remarkable. And if you've never studied The New Yorker, for example, and what, what their guidelines are for vetting a story— it's comical. You simply will not believe what they will go through to vet and verify a story. So you know when you're getting it, that you're getting something good. Now, The Atlantic had an article from, I think his name is Ed Young. He's their, um, Young, is, uh, he's their science writer or one of their science writers. He did a really good piece last week about the pandemic. It was called The Pandemic Summer. And I sent it to a bunch of people. And I said, this is as good a, a recap and forecast as I've seen. And he was, wasn't talking about two months. He was talking about two years from now and sort of what the next two years is going to be. I also sent it to a couple of Trump supporters. And both of them wrote back immediately with the same exact reply. Quote, too long. Get it? Too long. They couldn't read it. It's a magazine article. And they both wrote back and said it's too long. So that, I thought, was another reflection of last week's take on the Trump base. Okay. A few weeks ago, I started talking, this is point 11, a few weeks ago, I started talking about YouTube, and I said, YouTube is getting blasted because people are saying, oh, it's just softcore porn selling shit. Everybody uses softcore porn. And I was like, no, it's not. And I listed, only listed the categories that were, people were using softcore porn to sell. And it had to be 500 categories or less, right? And I'm like, it's not that big of a deal. Leave YouTube alone. I just want to say, on April 20th, I think it's the 20th, 2020, 2020, 2020, uh, I was wrong. Uh, and the fact is that YouTube is all about softcore porn and everyone is using it and we all should use it because it's the only thing that works. Do it. Do it with everything you're doing on YouTube, no matter what it is or how it is, it is the only thing that drives traffic is softcore porn. And what tipped me over the top was researching a bike packing something. And for those of you who don't know, bike packing is like, it's like bike touring, but it's a little bit more uh, lightweight, you know, no panniers. It's much smaller frame packs, shorter trips, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting. People have been doing it forever, but now it's like an entire industry. By the way, bikepacking.com is one of the best looking websites you're ever going to find. Even if you have no interest in bicycles, Look at bikepacking.com because that site is beautiful. I love how it looks. I love how it works. I love the color palette. I love everything about it. But I'm on YouTube and I'm trying to research this one bikepacking thing like an idiot. And I find there's a guy on YouTube who makes films. He's a bicycle traveler and he's really good. I think he's a former professional rider and he's good. His films are not flashy. There's too much drone footage. Um, which I get because he's in a pretty amazing locations. And he's on the road for like years and years at a time. He'll go from like uh, Prudhoe Bay in Alaska to Patagonia, right? Over two or three years. And he makes YouTube films and they're really well done because it's not just copious backlit 4K 
bike shots of his bike, right? Which there's a ton of bicycle stuff about that because again, like photography, bicycling is dominated by people who only want to talk about the equipment. But this guy's really good. And when you watch a film of his, you're going to learn about the region and all kinds of stuff. And they're, they're the right length. They look good. There's enough like good cycling, uh, I would call action shots where you're learning about like, oh, if I was in there, you know, I would need a, a two and a half inch tire to like get by. So if I'm going to ride this at some point, I'm, I'm learning from what he's showing me he's already doing kind of thing. But I noticed that his last film has 11,000 views, which in YouTube is like nothing, right? It means nothing. But then he does a teaser of another film, which is very out of character for him. He does a teaser, and there's a young girl on the, <laughs> on the teaser frame, the, the, the frame that identifies the film, the placeholder, whatever you want to call it. I don't know any of the terminology. And it has 120,000 views, right? So it's like 10,000, 9,000, 20,000, and then boom, young girl on the cover, 120,000. So I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. And so I look very innocently. Now I'm, now I'm just like my soul is oozing out of my body. And I look down, and two films down, is it not particularly good film or long film or interesting film or well-produced film, but it's a girl on her road bike with her cycling jersey totally unzipped, and basically her peaks and valleys are hanging out. Not entirely, because I think that's probably illegal on YouTube. You probably can't show everything, but it's pretty much everything. And I look, and it's 600,000 views. (coughs) I'm getting choked up. 600,000 views. So I was wrong. I was wrong. It's the only reason to use YouTube. If you're going to do anything, I don't care if it's about nursing homes, softcore porn is what is going to get you the traffic. And let's face it, that's the only thing that matters. Okay, we're bouncing around here, and I don't really care because these points come in as they come into my brain, and I don't rearrange them in case you're wondering. So Trump said something a couple of weeks ago that I – not a couple of weeks ago, last week that I thought was pretty interesting. And then the the next point, by the way, which is point 13, is going to blow your mind because this is such a good one. But point 12 is we're talking about something that Trump said, which was, I have total authority, right? And he loves to say that because he wants to be a dictator and he doesn't know about the Constitution. He doesn't know how politics or the government works. He just does whatever he wants. And the Republicans go, yep, we're going to stand behind you the whole time. So Trump used an expression that I have total authority, and people, the lefties, were all up in arms. Oh, my God, he doesn't understand the Constitution, all the things we've known for forever, 50 years about Trump. But the truth is, he does have total authority. So for those of you who are upset by this, you better lock and load and strap yourself in because this is how it works. He, Trump is shrewd. you got to give him that. And the Dems are clueless. So Trump bought the Justice Department. William Barr works for Donald Trump. We know that now, and we know that many times over based on his actions and his speech. So there is no check and balance coming from justice to to rein Trump in. Barr works for Trump, even though they would never admit that publicly, but we, we know that now. He also owns the Supreme Court, and if Ruth Ginsburg goes away, which I hope never happens, he will appoint another right wing wacko to the Supreme Court forever, and that makes it even worse. He also owns the appellate court system by appointing these lifelong positions to wacko right-wing people, and he also owns the Senate because he owns the Republican Party. So there is no way to check him right now. He is completely and utterly has in, is in total authority. He owns the Republican Party. They are his bitch 100% across the board. There is not a single person in the party who will come close to even remotely disagreeing with him. And that tells you that he has total authority. That's just my take on the whole thing. Okay, point number 13 is both terrible, but also wildly entertaining to me because I've been talking about this for years and everybody's been telling me, oh, you're overreacting, you don't understand. Okay, this just well, this happened last week and it sucks because people are gonna get slammed by this but you could see it coming from outer space. So last week, there was a court ruling that said that 
Instagram can embed your work without you receiving any payment. Because if you sign the terms of agreement with Instagram, which is what you have to do to use the platform, you are granting a sub-license to license your work for free. So what this what happened was photographer Stephanie Sinclair was approached by Mashable, who said they were doing some retrospective piece about some con some story. I don't know what it was. And they saw, they saw an image of hers and they wanted to use it. And she said, no, thank you, because Mashable said we want to pay you $50. And Stephanie Sinclair apparently said no. And guess what? Mashable took it anyway. And they used it. So she sued Mashable. And the court ruled that she, by using the Instagram licensing agreement, which is the user agreement that you sign up to use, that you are granting a sub-license and there's no way that they, no one needs to pay you. Now, photographers are clueless for the most part about these things and no one likes to read the, the, the uh, terms of service. And so I'm guessing that a vast majority of professional photographers didn't read those terms and didn't know. But here's the funny part. Peter Crow, who's a very smart dude in a variety of different subject matters, wrote an article in 2013 called the Instagram Papers, which is when apparently they switched over to this licensing agreement. And P wrote a paper called the Instagram Papers and said, photographers, you better, you better get your head out of your ass because this is coming. This is the point of the, of the platform. They can take and use your work without any compensation to you. And I don't think anybody bothered to read that. I mean, certainly not enough people because it's not sexy, right? And when you're addicted to a platform like that, you're physically and mentally addicted to those little little dopamine, little cortisol blasts that you're going to get from that platform. Everyone overlooks it. And in the age of the popularity contest, people like Mark Zuckerberg know exactly what they're doing. And Zuckerberg right now is laughing his ass off. Um, the, the founders of Instagram resigned uh, in the recent past. There was lots of difficulties and differences of opinion between Zuckerberg and the founders of Instagram who thought they were going to have autonomy. And it turns out they were not. So this just happened last week. And there's a lot of people slow to pick up on this, right? And there's a lot of people making excuses and saying it's no big deal. You also have now industry types in photography demanding that Instagram change their licensing agreement. I mean, please. First of all, they've had it in service for years. Why would they change it now? They have billions of people on this platform who are so addicted to it, they can't think without having it in their hand. Why on earth? And here's the other thing, which a lot of people probably don't realize, is a lot of times behind these service agreements or behind things like the Orphan, work, orphan Works Bill, and if you don't know what the Orphan Works Bill is and you're a photographer, you better look it up because it's going to come to your neighborhood sometime soon. It almost came to your neighborhood a couple years ago. And what happens is the pipeline for content, the demand for content now is so high and so large they can't get enough content to fill the global pipeline. It's like the, the pipeline that goes from, from uh, Prudhoe Bay in Alaska south, right? It's X, X inches in diameter, and you know we want to try to keep this thing maximum capacity all the time. And the, the, the digital pipeline is the same. Every advertisement, every promotion, you know, every stock use, there's just not enough content. So there's no way that they can slow down and license images individually from creatives. The Orphan Works bill was basically saying, look, if I'm a corporation or uh, somebody who's trying to use an image, I can take and use whatever I want for free after a reasonable search for the, for the content owner, the creator. And if I can't find them, I'm gonna, I can use it anyway. And the largest, um, rep the largest settlement that I have to pay if I get caught is $50, right? And it would, just, would have just put every professional out of business. I think if I remember correctly, Google was really behind the whole thing. But anyway, it was barely voted down. It'll come back. You know, they're going to do this. And I think that's for, for Instagram. They've got all this content from some of the, from creators all over the world just sitting there. And they want to use it. They want to monetize that. And so, man, if you're still on it, and you don't know about that, I don't know what planet you've been living on. So anyway, oh, and oh, by the way, good news. I figured out last week how to delete my Instagram account for the second time, even though it wasn't my Instagram account. The first time I deleted it, I was in Pie Town, New Mexico, standing in the middle of the road, and I deleted it. That was six years ago. But then Blurb made an account in my name, and I didn't make it, so I didn't set it up. I didn't know the username. I didn't know the password, any of that stuff. I tried a couple of times before. I couldn't figure it out. I figured it out, and I deleted it last week. So um, I hadn't looked at it in a long time. So anyway, I'm officially gone now. So I love it when people link out to my Instagram account still. I think it's really funny. 
I don't know where it leads. Hopefully just a giant black page with like a smoldering ruin. I don't know. Um, I was going to talk, point 14 was about um, practical knowledge and creative confidence, but I wrote a long blog post about that today. And so I'm going to, I'm going to skip that um, and just move on. Okay. This is a long point. Uh, Structured lives, blah, blah, blah. Coronavirus, uh, boring and safe, expense accounts, parasite chronicles. This is what's going through my brain right now, people. These are all points that I could talk about. Um, oh, I think I will hit Parasite Chronicles, and then I'm going to tell a story, and then I'm gone. So I, I thought it would be interesting. I got two more emails this week from young creatives who were trying to pillar me and my website. Now, this happens pretty much every week, and you all get these. Anybody who has a website gets them. Hey, I've been looking at your site, and I thought it would be a great way to partner, and you know we should do stuff together and blah, blah, blah. And I thought the, the title for this should be the Parasite Chronicles because they're parasitic. They're like remora fish that are stuck to the side of a bigger fish, and they're trying to like mine something off of the beast. And it's not like my site is particularly popular or big. I have no idea many, how many people read my site. Probably not very many. I don't care. But I got two more emails last week, and they both happened to be about the same post. And one of them, what was clear was they had not looked at the post. <laughs> and I was like, oh, and it, it, it kind of caught me by surprise because I thought, maybe I am connected to these people. I haven't looked at this post in a long time. And then I looked at the post, and I looked at the two emails, and I was like, but they're not related. And you're talking about a subject matter that the post isn't about, and and you want me to link out. And I was baffled because what I realized was, I don't think either of these emails were spam emails. They were sent individually to me, which was really odd, like that they had gone to the site and looked. One of them had a connection, but not a great connection. And then the other one had no connection other than the fact that the post was talking about vehicular travel of some sort. And the person who reached out was very specific about one kind of vehicular traffic, which didn't have anything to do with my post and my kind of vehicular traffic. And I was like, that's odd. And so I thought the Parasite Chronicles would be good. And I think I might add this in every week because it's happening all the time. And I get not only people trying to engage with me, but I get way more trying to engage with Blurb. And I think I mentioned those last week where people are like, I've decided to make a book and I will put Blurb on the map and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh God, for the love of God, go away. Can I change my, can I, can I change the internet? Is that possible? Okay, I'm going to tell a story. It's a continuation of last week's story. So if you remember Chilkoot Trail in Alaska, five-day hike, we come off of this thing. It's a blizzard. Oh, there's another. There's a third part of this that I'll add at the end that I think is actually kind of funny. It's about getting really wildly drunk. But the second part, so we come off and we end up getting a ride across the lake with a young kid who's married to the Klingit person. We do the sweat lodge. It nearly kills us. However, I find this ability to disappear sort of physically because I was in so much pain, and I thought, okay, this has got to be the point of the sweat lodge. This is a wonderful thing. I see the world in a different way. I should be able to tap into this when I need it from now on. So it was, a, it was I would say, a life-changing event in my life. I think I still think about it quite a bit. I still smudge every morning. I, I'm not joking about this either. I have uh, sage that I, I get up, and as my coffee is starting, and I'm waiting for the espresso maker to get fired up, you know, and I'm dumping a gallon of diesel fuel into the espresso maker and then lighting it with uh you know kerosene torches i smudge the room with sage i'm not joking i love it i think it's an amazing practice and um anyway i think about it it reminds me of being in the sweat lodge but the second part of this is we come out of the sweat lodge we get into the car and we are like zombies we went through four rounds of this thing we're probably down five gallons of fluid alone, right? We're, we probably sweat out at least five pounds, maybe 10 pounds of, of sweat. We're just emaciated wrecks. And oh, by the way, we just came off of a five-day hike, which means we were minimal food, maximum exertion, etc. We're running on fumes to say the least. So the magazine decided they wanted us to do aerials over the crux of the climb, sort of the peak of the climb, which is a very historical location, a very important location historically on this particular trail. So we start asking around, and word travels that the magazine that we are working for, which is a very famous magazine, is in town looking to hire somebody to do aerials, and so the price 
for the aviation fuel and the helicopter goes way up, like just way beyond anybody's budget. So the magazine calls and says, forget it. So we are now, you know, even before we got in the sweat lodge, before we even go on the trail, we're like, we're not doing aerials, right? And I had never been in a helicopter. And so I was like, oh, that'll be cool. And nothing ever goes wrong with helicopters, right? They never go down, especially over natural areas. So what have I got to lose? So anyway, we go into this thing and we come out of the sweat lodge and we're driving back towards Skagway. And I look over in the bushes and fallen over and covered in weeds is this little sign with a plane on it. And I go, hey, 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 stop, stop, stop. Look at that sign. And there's a little dirt road and a little a little wooden sign with like a hand-done plane. And and it, here the here's the fateful turn of the photographer's hand on the steering wheel and the sound of tires on a gravel road. And we turn right and go down this little road. And lo and behold, at the end of this road, is there's no hangar. There's just a plane. And it's a plane like I've never seen before. And again, I'm not an aviation specialist, so I don't really know. It looks, it has the smallest fuselage of anything I've ever seen. And it's sitting at an angle. There's two wheels in front and the little tiny wheel in the back. But the plane is at an extreme angle. So it's pointed like way far up in the sky. And the entire thing is engine. It's just this massive engine, beautiful cowling and just like a beautiful propeller, tiny plane. Now, I realize now that plane was designed for super short runways, like it can take off anywhere because in a very few moments after arriving, uh, we were going to be in that plane. So we show up and this kid comes out. He's a kid. Let's be honest. He's a, he's a, he's a child and he's the pilot. And so we go, hey, this is what we need to do. And he goes, yeah, I'll do it. No problem. And so we're looking at each other like, hey, it's our lucky day. But the fuselage has doors and windows on it, right? Because it's, you know, you want to keep your stuff inside the plane. And the photographer goes, I can't shoot through plexi. You got to take the doors and the windows out of the plane. And so the, you know, the kid's kind of looking at us and we're looking at him and he's like, um, okay, question mark. And we're like, you've flown without the doors and windows before, right? And he's like, oh, oh yeah, all the time. So we pull these doors and windows off. I'm in the co-pilot seat. This kid is in the pilot seat, and the photographer is in the back, and the plane, the fuselage is so narrow that his back is wedged against one side, and his legs are hanging out of the plane on the other side. It's that small. And he's somehow, like, strapped himself in so that if the plane, you know, tilts, he's not going to go flying out like airmail. So now, again, we're just out of the sweat lodge. I'm wasted. Not drinking-wise, but, like, just exhaustion-wise. I think both of us were. And this kid hits the throttle, and this plane goes straight up. I mean, it must have been on the runway like 30 feet and just went straight up. Now, I'm not a huge fan of small planes, and if I am in a small plane, I kind of like a nice, flat, low-level, calm, oh, look, a picket fence um, and people picking berries, that kind of flight. That's not what this flight was. This flight, we rocket up the side of this mountain face, and now I'm just hanging on for dear life. I'm like, we're all going to die. It's, it's going to be the Donner Party and Alive all rolled into one. And we get up above this first round of peaks, and it's freezing cold. And so again, sweat lodge to absolutely freezing cold. No doors and windows. The air's coming in like we're outside the plane. And right in the windshield in front of me is a hole in the glass. And the hole in the glass is right in the middle. It lines up right with the middle of my forehead. So there's a pencil beam of just frigid, arctic, frozen air that's hitting me right in the middle of my forehead for the entire flight. And so now I'm just, I'm, I'm a popsicle. I'm frozen to the metal seat of the plane with my head just numbing as the minutes go by. But when we got up above the first line of mountains... What, this is where Alaska really hit home for me, where I realized, even though I'd been on a five-day trail, you're at ground level. You can't really see the surrounding area. I realized that behind the mountain range that I was in, that we had hiked over, was another range and another range and another range of untouched, no-roads wilderness. And that, to me, was the single most important point of my entire trip, it was not the hike. It was not getting wildly intoxicated later the same day. It was realizing what was there and how 
remarkable that was that we had that untouched wilderness. So as we're flying, the photographer's like, you got to get lower, you got to get lower, you got to get lower. And so we flew over this very important part of the trail. And as we're flying over, the pilot goes, hang on. And this is where I just about lost it. He turns the plane completely sideways. So the wings are now perpendicular to the earth, and he's just ripping down this, this tree line. Now, it sounds exciting, right? It's not. I was terrified. And again, my forehead is now 30 degrees colder than the rest of my body. And he is just treetop level. To, and he's, he did it so the photographer could shoot out without getting his legs in the frame, getting the, the, anything from the plane in the frame, getting a clear shot. It was terrifying. And so thankfully, small plane, small tank, um, we turned around and flew back and landed. And then the photographer and I, you know, literally just sat in the car staring at each other for a couple of minutes and then made our way back to the town and then proceeded to go into a bar. And this is where the last thing I'm going to leave you with. So it was the five day hike, the sweat lodge straight into the plane, straight to the bar. And for some reason, this is probably the worst decision of the entire trip. I can almost assure this is the worst. Well, I don't know. There's two or three more that are popping up now. We didn't check the tent before we left. The tent leaked. Uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of bad decisions. Oh, my sh- my shoes were flat. I think I told you that. I had no tread on my shoes, and, and the soles had holes in them. Um, our water filtration tablets didn't work. Uh, yeah, okay. It was a myriad of disasters. But we go to this bar, and there's it's totally unspoken, right, between the photographer and I. There's no, no word of what we are about to do. It was just full acknowledgement and acceptance from the moment we hit the door was our job, our sole responsibility is to get shit-faced. I mean, commode-hugging drunk. And that's what we did. But for some weird reason, and I, this is not my responsibility or my fault, the photographer decided that the drink that we would use to attain the level of intoxication that we were after was the mudslide. Okay, think about that. Now, I don't even really know what's in a mudslide, but what I do know is if you are after a high level of intoxication, you do not want anything with milk or Kahlua involved in the equation. That's my personal opinion. Uh, I would even call it an expert opinion uh, because by about two o'clock in the morning, we were at critical levels. We were at DEFCON 5. And the fact that we were not killed by a bear trying to get back to our hotel room is a minor miracle. And we were not right for multiple days afterwards, multiple days of questioning our existence our intelligence, uh, the belief that none, neither of us should really live, we didn't deserve to live, that we were not worthy of oxygen use, taking it away from other people, that Alaska was too good for us. We just wanted to die. That was it. Two days trapped in a hotel in a tiny room with the world's worst hangover. And um, I'm not even sure the story got run, but that's another story. Anyway, that's uh, for what it's worth this week. That was a fun one. I've got some topics lined up for next week, and I'm working on a couple of films that are really kicking me in the neck. They're hard. They're complicated. I've started and stopped and started and redone and started over. So it's been a busy week already, and it's not even the end of Monday. So yikes. Thanks for tuning in.